You're listening to highlights from the Creative Process interview with Roy Scranton. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You called it, elsewhere, as you said, learning how to die, but yes, how to live with less and how to reimagine, you know, what the point of life, what is our capitalism, what all these things that we've held to be true that are actually killing us. So I also know you have a young child. How will you prepare your child for the future? This is something that's on all our minds, even those who don't have children. That's a huge question. It's something I think about as a father and as a teacher. There's a couple different ways I think about it. The one aspect to think about is how can I teach her? How can I teach her resilience? And how can I help my students understand the predicament we're in? How can I help them face the situation in its full ferocity, in its full danger, without necessarily like scaring them into panic, into a a kind of helplessness, right? Panic actually might be somewhat appropriate. There's two key parts of that for me. One is being as honest as possible about the extremity of the situation. It seems irresponsible to me to downplay the possible consequences of climate change. It seems irresponsible to assume that we're going to fix it. And so I think it's absolutely a responsibility for the people who are talking about it and thinking about it to look at the worst case scenario and to look at the current trajectories absent technologies for carbon scrubbers to look at where we're actually headed and and the worst case scenarios and address that and bring that to each other and bring that to our children and bring that to our students. When you really look at the situation, it's scary and terrifying and it upends everything that we've been told to make sense of life, right? In capitalist society, how you get around, what, you know, what's important, driving, flying, uh, the different ways we measure prestige and status and how we measure a good life. None of that makes sense when you put it up against a planet undergoing massive ecological upheaval. That That is the, the second part of what I think being a mentor or being a parent or being an adult or a teacher with regard to climate change means helping younger people sit with the terror and sit with the grief, the sense of unknown and not push it away and not repress it and not try to find a way to just move past it without dealing with it. But really to really inhabit that space of unknowing and fear and grief, because that's the space, that's the reality that we live in. And the only way forward is through that, right? Those two things are for me the key things when it comes to thinking about the younger generations is to help them as fully and realistically as possible confront the extremity of our situation, and then help them sit with and process the profound and complex emotions that that are going to come out of that. And I was wondering, you know, about your experiences in the army. I have to say, sometimes I would get angry at the amount of funding that is funneled into the army. I mean, in terms of basic human rights for education and healthcare that was neglected. I sometimes I felt like it's mismanaged. I will say that. And then I thought, well, to me, the U.S. Army, the Marines, it's like a a vast socialist enterprise. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Although they don't ever call it that. Right. Highly organized. So what have you learned from that? How could we even use that to combat not wars overseas and, you know, outsourcing all of these more traumas upon other people, but bring it back home and combat climate change? That's a great question. Yeah, it's something I've thought about a lot with regard to World War II, the, the conflict people saw at that point between the commercial sort of capitalist ethos, the the democratic liberal ethos, the individualist ethos of of American culture, and the demand at that point, you know, to fight the war for collective, communitarian, sacrificial values. You know, there were a lot of people who saw that 
conflict, that ethical conflict quite powerfully. That's certainly one way of looking at our situation now. You know, it's true. The army is the most socialist organization I've ever been a part of. Everybody put the collective good, or at least they were supposed to, and most people did, put the collective good over ahead of their individual good. There were income discrepancies between the officers and the enlisted, but they were nowhere near what you see in corporate America. In various ways, it was a very collectivist uh, and socialist organization. It's possible, I suppose, to, to imagine somehow that transferring to broader American culture. I'm, I'm not sure how, precisely because the army is such a closed system. There's a very strict process of getting into it. And there's this sort of initiation you go through. Um, and being in the military, you really identify as someone who is as a service member is not part of mainstream American culture, right? You might be as a, you know, in your off time, but as a service member, you see yourself as set apart. One could certainly imagine some sort of science fiction novel where there's a, a some kind of socialist revolution, some kind of income equality, and everybody commits to the fight in that way. It's hard to see how that would work out in reality. It's interesting to think about William James talked about the moral equivalent of war, right? He talked about precisely how war has this collectivizing effect, and it uh, helps bring out the best in us in so many ways. It's a sort of, you know, early 20th century macho wilderness Theodore Roosevelt kind of ethic, but it's also it really profound insights into ways that that kind Kind of collective endeavor can bring people together. But his solution at the end of that, if you go back and read it, is for a war against nature. <laughs> right? We sort of saw this in the New Deal. We'd build roads and dams and we would all team up and go out and tame nature. Well, you see where that's got us. And that may be a possibility as we move forward, but I'm not exactly sure that that's, that's certainly not what I envision when I think about what a sustainable future looks like for humans on earth. It's not a war against nature. But an interesting that in recent polls, Republicans in America have, and you know, the Republicans are not fans of socialism, but when polled, because capitalism is failing so many people, and asked whether they might be open to socialism, I think it was something that 40% he said, said yes, not because they love socialism, but because capitalism is failing them. Yeah, and that's good news on one level. And another level, it's alarming, at least insofar as historically, in these periods where there's a mass of discontented people resisting capitalism or upset about its rewards, there tends to be a fair bit of social upheaval and often war that draws off a lot of that discontent and is able to redirect it into various forms of nationalism. You can see this quite clearly with Woodrow Wilson's efforts around World War One and the Creel Committee, uh, which were coextensive with efforts to grind down very active American labor organization at the time from socialists to anarchists anarchists all over the US. And then you can see it again in World War II. And as well, there, there are numerous very sophisticated arguments for the value of capitalism, value of markets, for providing information on value and costs. A lot of people do make arguments, and this is inarguable, that over the last 200 years, capitalism and technological innovation have brought a higher standard of living and greater health to the people of the world. That's inarguable. That's absolutely true. It's a combination of of capitalism, imperialism, and technological innovation that have raised all boats and in, in their way and increased standards of living and so on and so on. People like Steven Pinker make this argument. There's various kinds of just so stories about how we're all better off now because of capitalism and technological development than humans were in 1784. The thing that all these stories ignore, however, is two things. One is that this trend line parallels various other trend lines 
that measure our devastation and exploitation of the earth. This trend line is real, right, in terms of human wealth and general quality of life as measured in, in numerical terms. The costs for that are also manifest and have largely been externalized, if not necessarily into the environment where they often are, they're also externalized into the future, which is to say, yes, there's this huge surge in human population and relative wealth and so on and so on, but there's absolutely no reason to believe that it's sustainable into the future, especially not infinitely. Infinite growth is impossible, right? It's just not physically possible. The other thing that these people tend to ignore or elide or obscure is that this trend line is also, it's essentially grounded in empire and fossil fuels. It mostly comes out of coal, oil, and guns. That turns us back to the question of costs that have been externalized into the environment or externalized into the future, populations that are regarded as disposable. And then it also ignores the very real power dynamics behind that with a kind of jaw-dropping injustice, divide up that wealth unequally, persistently all along that line and continues to do so. Techno-utopianists who see technology as saving us from climate change are not about to give away all their money to lift up the masses. Their idea remains a kind of Reagan-esque trickle-down economic model where a rising tide will lift all boats and if they get wealthier, they'll save some, you know, it'll all come down somehow, but they leave out these questions of uh, disparity and violence and the dependence on fossil fuels. Exactly. And this extractivist mentality where traditional society and, and work structures where they had ownership of their own, you know, labor and their own community and the whole happiness index isn't taken into account, the whole feeling that then they become dependent as we take their natural resources. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.